Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to today's hybrid event here at the London School of Economics, which forms part of our regular LSE festival, the theme of which this year is how do we get to a post-COVID world? It is so nice to see you all here in person and hello also to our hybrid audience. We've had to run the festival online for the last two years and it's a real joy to have you here. It's running this entire week, so please tune in for other events, both in person and online, all of which, all of the events are focused on how do we shape a better world. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, and I'm incredibly pleased today to welcome uh, Dr. Mukalika Banerjee, Dr. Leah Upi, and Dr. Um, Dr. Yashka Munk online for today's event to talk about the future of democracy. Mukalika Benerji is, the associ- is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at LSE, uh, and her new monograph, Cultivating Democracy, Politics and Citizenship in Agrarian India, was just published last year. Yashka Munk is, uh, has joined us remotely as a writer, academic, and public speaker, particularly known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. And Leah Upi is a professor in political theory here at the LSE in the Department of Government and adjunct associate professor in philosophy at the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. Now, most people would agree that democracies are in crisis in many parts of the world with declining trust in politicians and institutions like parliaments. Falling citizen engagement in many parts of the world, a collapse in civic debate based on a common set of facts, and a rise in admiration for authoritarian systems that seem to be able to deliver better for their citizens than democracies. And so today we're going to talk about the future of democracy as a political system, and particularly explore the importance of values and institutions to underpin our, our democracies. We have a fantastic panel. They're each going to speak for about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, and then we will open it up to questions from the audience in the room, as well as people online. Just some practicalities. For those of you who are using Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, I'll ask those in the room to put their phones on silent. Uh, We also plan to record this and make this available as a podcast. There'll be a chance to ask questions at the end. There'll be microphones roving in the audience here. And then I'll turn to uh, Maddie, who will uh, give me questions from those online who can use the Q&A function. And we'll try and get to as many questions as we can. So we're going to start the evening with Leah, and then we will turn to Yashka, and then we will close with Mukalika. Over to you. Great. Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. So what I'm going to do in the next 15 minutes is to try and talk first about the ideal of democracy as we know it from history of political thought, from history, from philosophers reflecting on why we need democracy, and then to try and connect democracy to freedom and reflect to the extent to which democracy and freedom are present in contemporary world. And my thesis is that they are not, and that in fact, the reason 
for why we don't have either democracy or freedom is liberal capitalism. So this is what I'm going to say in the next um, 15 minutes. But I'm going to start with a sentence from a very famous text in the history of political thought, which is Rousseau's social contract that starts with the sentence, people are free and everywhere they are in chains. This is first line. And the social contract is a key text to explain both the relationship between democracy protection and obedience to the state to ask ourselves, well, why do we obey these laws? Why do we accept the things that states tell us to do? But also I think that line is a key line to understand recent events and the crisis of contemporary political institutions from the global pandemic to the current global war. So the crisis of democracy that we are witnessing, I think has brought to light a kind of curious tension because on the one hand, it has challenged old globalization theories that have told us for many, many years that the state is dead, that sovereignty is gone as an idea, and uh, have in fact celebrated the end of the state. But on the other hand, it has revealed, I think, the distance from the only conception of sovereignty that is important to make the state an acceptable institution and to make it morally appealing, and to legitimize it democratically, which is the notion that we are all equal authors of the laws that we are required to obey. So the modern concept of democracy is based on this very idea. It's what gives legitimation to the institutions that we live under. And it's a very distinctive account of legitimation because it's different from what we experienced in the ancient time where community norms, for example, were the source of legitimacy or in the medieval and the early modern period where people would appeal to the divine right of kings to explain why is it that we have to obey the institutions that we live under. And uh, this modern concept of legitimation is in fact tightly connected to the idea of democracy, which is that we make the laws that we are required to obey. And this conception of making the laws of equal authorship of the laws that we are uh, required to obey explains also why in circumstances of emergency, like the one that we have just been through or like the emergencies that we faced, why is it that the state and the state only can make certain demands on us? If it was a mob, if it was other people, we wouldn't obey these laws. And it also explains why sometimes the state can suspend the freedoms that it guarantees. You remember with the pandemic, uh, the freedom to associate, the freedom to move, the freedom to vote in elections. Most of these freedoms were in fact at one point or another suspended in the name of the emergency and they were suspended by the state. They were in theory guaranteed in the finding documents, in the legal uh, texts in the constitution of many modern liberal states, but in fact were restricted or suspended in the name of the uh, pandemic emergency. And the idea was there that there was a higher order threat to our community life that required individuals to make sacrifices to these freedoms that they had always lived under in the name of a collective responsibility that we all had to uh, take and to face and to take forward together. So we had to accept to sacrifice part of our individual freedom so that everyone's life could be protected. Now, uh, so we have seen a kind of return to sovereignty in practice, and we have also seen why this democratic idea of legitimacy and democratic idea of sovereignty matters in theory, because it was in the name of that democratic sovereignty that these emergency measures were um, taken. But in practice, uh, what we also saw during the pandemic 
was that in fact, a lot of this was actually rhetoric because the pandemic did not affect everyone equally. In principle, we were all authors of the laws that we were required to obey. In principle, the emergency was invoked in the name of everybody to protect everybody. But in fact, the consequences of the pandemic were lived in asymmetrical ways for many individuals. And so in the same weeks, for example, in which I have some data here in which 22 million Americans lost their jobs, US billionaire wealth increased by almost 10%. Or uh, we know that during the quarantine, domestic violence, for example, which is now more uh, frequently labeled intimate terrorism surged. And we also know that the burdens associated with caring for children or elderly people meant that the return to work was much more difficult for women than it was for, for men. And we also know that during the lockdown, the attainment gap, for example, of children from poor backgrounds was set back by years compared to children from middle class and um, rich families. We also know that the long-term psychological consequences of the crisis, including anxiety and depression, affected most strongly poor people and that what it would take to bring those people to a state of mental health would be much difficult to achieve than for others. And I'm not even going to go into the international aspects of the asymmetries that the global pandemic revealed, which have to do with access to vaccines in different parts of the world. We know how it was much easier for some states to produce and to hoard vaccines for themselves and their populations, but not so much for, for others. So I'm going to return to the philosophical ideal in the back, against the backdrop of these uh, data. So philosophical descriptions imagine a condition pre-civil society in which we live in a kind of state of nature where there is a lawless conditions in which human beings can't sleep because they fear of losing their lives. Everyone is at mercy of being attacked by everyone else and people compete violently for access to basic necessities. Some people pursue honors and pursue recognition and uh, as a way to kind of making themselves immune to external threat. And the story that we get from that account of the state of nature and the terrible predicament of living in the state of nature is that we need a collective notion of freedom to overcome this individualistic lawless notion of freedom. So what we do is we trade off the individual freedoms that we have in the state of nature in this kind of lawless condition for the freedom of being responsible altogether in um, community. So Individuals lose part of this uh, freedom, but become safer in the knowledge that uh, it's regulated by the state, and they have an equal say in making the rules of the state. And this is what democracy ultimately is about. So uh, the challenge, as Rousseau put it, the challenge of modernity, which this conception of collective freedom seems to answer to, is how to find a society in which people, while associating with others, remain as free as they were before. And the response is, well, we do that because we have uh, democratic legitimacy. So freedom then is not the freedom of the state of nature, is not the freedom of the individuals to do whatever they like, but it's the freedom of a social condition. It's a freedom that we create through institutions that allow human beings to express this kind of social uh, nature. Now, liberalism and liberal capitalism are one institutional response, one effort to understand and to create this conception of democracy that is also responsible to concerns for freedom. But I think uh, liberal capitalist institutions and also to some extent liberal political theories have uh, failed at three levels to do this, to bring together in a productive way freedom and democracy. 
So I'm going to say something very briefly about why this has happened and how I think liberalism, while seeking to overcome this fear of living in the state of nature, this fear of lawless freedom, has actually created pathologies of its own and, and the kinds of crises that we are now all uh, living under. So one aspect of this is the notion of civil society and the idea that on the one hand, liberalism celebrates the liberation of individuals historically and philosophically from, as we said, the yoke of tradition, of authority, of religion, and finds the source in the individual in individual morality. But on the other hand, it has also historically celebrated the emergence of a new idea, which is the idea of civil society. The civil society is very important because it's basically a conception of interactions between individuals that finds in trade and in the market a notion through which spontaneous interactions between everyone will generate benefits that can be, then be trickled down and uh, be addressed by and, and then respond to the problems that all of us individually face. However, and this was the, the very idea of commercial society, for example, that flourished in 18th century thought, and this idea of the, uh, for those of you who study political theory, of the du commerce as something that responds to the, to the threats. But critics of commercial society from very, very early on also pointed out that this very notion of commercial society that circulated in the 18th century came with its own pathologies. Why? Because it came with a list of destructive psychological dispositions that civil society sets in motion as it encourages competition between individuals. And people like Rousseau and Fichte and Kant and many, many authors and Marx most prominently highlighted some of these. They spoke about selfishness, they spoke about greed, they spoke about envy, they spoke about distrust, they spoke about competition for inessential and luxury goods that... Uh, made people exaggerate appearances and make them want to impress others and not prioritize what was really important. And so all of this then brought to the rich being indifferent to the fate of uh, the most vulnerable and to bringing out a kind of exploitative behavior that characterizes, I think, still the world in which we live, even though these theories that I was just citing detected these uh, passions already as part of the pathologies of uh, civil society. The second aspect that makes liberalism very, very difficult is the relationship between economic theory and the theory of the state. So a lot of early critics of liberalism observed that on the one hand, liberals celebrated civil society and commercial society, but on the other hand, they also needed the state to guarantee its functioning. So liberals credited themselves with the invention of human rights and the universal ideal of citizenship that we celebrated through the French and the American revolutions. And they credited themselves with the end of corporate representation and the destruction of um, authority. But this universal idea was constantly threatened by the conflict between the demands of commercial society on the one hand and what the state was able to provide on the other hand. So on the one hand, the state is necessary to guarantee private property and the kinds of rights and obligations that enable commercial society to function. On the other hand, the state doesn't have revenues of its own. It needs to tax citizens in order to provide for these basic necessities and has to rely on resources that markets allocate. And that makes the predicament very difficult to um, respond. So these elements are all, I think, speak to the more general question concerning a kind of liberal understanding of freedom and its relationship to power. On the one hand, liberals seek to limit power of the state, of religious authorities, of any form of collective organization that threatens individual freedom. 
But in its efforts to disperse power, liberalism generates its own distinctive power structures, its own set of efforts uh, of fears and its own kinds of unfreedom. And the problem is that liberal structures are anonymized and rather than personal, they're kind of spontaneous. They're not planned. Nobody intends to do anything. Nobody intends to be exploitative. Nobody intends to harm other people. But what happens is that the psychological attitudes that come with that package end up consolidating and breeding selfishness and indifference. Uh, and so it's not about outright aggression. It's about the failures of doing certain things. Um, so liberal society, I want to suggest, is a society that is not free from fear. In some ways, it's worse than the state of nature because in the state of nature, powerlessness is evenly distributed. Whereas in liberal society, you have a different kind of discrepancy. You have huge discrepancies in the protection that the state is able to afford to people. And the state doesn't take responsibility for all its citizens in the same way because of these pathologies of the relationship between civil society and the state. So the health emergency, I think the COVID pandemic was one very good way of looking at some of these pathologies of civil society that I've just mentioned, this idea of selfishness, of greed, of just thinking about your, yourself, of overcoming the emergency in this individual way. But on the other hand, the economic and political and social crisis that it has set in motion are going to be with us for the foreseeable term. And we've already now seen the consequences of, of that. We know that uh, uh, WTO, for example, predicted worse global trade collapse in a generation. There's unprecedented levels of unemployment. There's unprecedented levels of uh, high rates of inflation. There is a surge of extreme poverty in other parts of the world, so not in the core Western rich liberal countries, but abroad. And there are economic crises that will compete with the Great um, Depression. So. In response to that, transnational institutions like the EU, the rhetoric of solidarity and cooperation always seems to fly on the face of this brutal reality of the current contemporary crises that we face. And so I think to remedy a crisis that is, seems to me a crisis of the system and a crisis of these proportions, we need to ask fundamental questions about the model around which states have built their social relations in the market, in the workplace, in the household, in educational institutions, in politics, and in the justice system. So this is a crisis with roots in historical injustices that get consolidated in the current systems and structures of power uh, that continue to benefit from those historical injustices. But it's a crisis also of liberal legitimacy. And when that is the case, if it's a case that uh, it's the, a crisis of the system and it's a crisis of legitimacy, there can't be democratic fixes that don't come with a change of vision. You can have elections, you can have parties that campaign on the old um, platforms, you can continue to have rotation in office, but so long as the political parties that we have, the forces uh, that exist, don't really depart from the past, from the models of the past, they risk repeating the errors of what led to the current crisis, and we risk losing large chunks of the electorate as we are doing. We see that people's rates of participation in elections are increasingly lower. Why? Because they don't believe in democracy, and they don't believe in democracy, I think, for good reasons. So just to wrap up, the threat to our civil condition is not just the kind of crisis that we have faced, but the condition of permanent emergency that we are about to enter into. Uh, the management of the pandemic, as, we, as I said, has kind of set a precedent for this unprecedented concentration of power in the hands of a few scientific experts or data controlling agencies 
or economic and political elites that continue to rely on the authority of the state to ask for everyone to obey the law, but in the end use that authority to provide services only to some and to give benefits only to some. And if we don't change the model in which we live, all of us, in a more radical egalitarian direction, the relationship to the state that these handlement of the emergencies enables is going to completely break down. Um, so the state will lose its authority and representative democracy will lose its function uh, as the mechanism that makes that authority accountable to its um, citizens, because politics will continue to channel just the voice of the strongest, the people who have data or money or a combination of all of these things, and the state will end up being a, an agency that just has the monopoly of power, but doesn't have legitimate authority. So I conclude by going back to Rousseau. He wrote that man is born free, men and women are born free, but everywhere are in chains. And the social contract wasn't just supposed to explain why the state fails, but also how it could be justified. And Rousseau gave us one solution, which was democracy. Democracy requires eliminating inequalities of wealth and power with roots in both historical and structural injustices. And it also requires and demands of us to turn the state from a vehicle of domination into one of emancipation. And I think in the 21st century, we may not be as far from the ideal of democracy as Rousseau was, but I don't think we're that close either. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. There's many big issues which we will come back to. Let me now turn to Yashka Munk. Yashka, you are, uh, you are large and on screens uh, around this room. Uh, so it's very nice to see you. Thank you for joining us and I will hand over to you. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me. I'm very sorry not to be able to be in London in person. I thankfully cannot see myself, but it's reassuring to learn that I'm towering over all of you. Um, <laughs> I hope it's not too creepy. Um, uh, I was mostly going to talk about uh, the topic of my last book, The Great Experiment, which is about um, the challenge of building deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies. Um, why that's so difficult and why I think we should be hopeful about uh, the state of these democracies and the progress that we've made, uh, even at a moment when when optimism may uh, feel very hard. But um, I always love when as a panel to actually have a little bit of back and forth. So perhaps I might begin by responding to a few of Leah's really interesting uh, remarks. Um, uh, the political scientist Robert Dahl, one of the um, really influential political scientists of the 20th century, uh, pointed out that the ideals of democracy have never been reached anywhere in the world. And so his most important book is not called Democracy, it's called Polyarchy, uh, not the rule of the people, but the rule of the many, because he recognized that if you just studied societies which really fulfill the aspiration of democracy, you wouldn't have much to study empirically. Uh, and so he chose uh, to focus his work on what he called polyarchies. I think the recognition that there is democratic ideals and liberal ideals to which we've never fully lived up to in the world is a very important one. It is one of the reasons that I, as a convinced philosophical liberal, um, uh, don't think of this philosophy as a more conservative philosophy. There are some important things in the world, uh, in the current shape of the world, in the current shape of countries like the United Kingdom that I do want to preserve, uh, but there are also very important ways in which I want to bring every country in the world, uh, including those that are most democratic and most liberal, uh, closer into alliance, uh, closer into fusion 
with the vision of a world that liberals have set out uh, for a very long time. Nevertheless, I do think that we need to uh, save ourselves from a kind of nihilism because there are also very important distinctions in the state of different countries around the world today. And I think when you get into saying, we don't live in a democracy at all, we're not free at all, uh, you lose very important contrast between the state of the United Kingdom today, for example, and the state of Russia, and the state of China, and the state of Venezuela, and the state of so many other countries in the world where people are excluded from having a say in their own societies, excluded from government, and the subject of the most terrible forms of tyranny and oppression in ways that I think do put into relief the ways in which, yes, we are free and yes, we are democratic, even if not perfectly so. We can come together at this wonderful festival and say what we want about Boris Johnson without any fear of going to jail. We can vote at the next election and perhaps we might be sad that not enough of our fellow citizens agree with the party we vote for, or that we might not have as many choices for who to vote for as we might wish. Uh, but that is very different from being in Shanghai today, uh, fearing that the government might come and put you into some kind of uh, indefinite quarantine on an irrational uh, basis without even having a way to legitimately protest this. And so I just wanted to start by, by driving home that philosophical aspiration is wonderful, and we should all have it, and I have it, uh, criticizing our societies, showing the ways in which we're falling short of the ideals is very important. Uh, but I think that a fair assessment of different countries in the world today, or indeed this moment in the world compared to 200 or 100 or 50 or 25 years ago, uh, will show us the lasting value of both democratic and liberal ideals. Because and here I'm coming to, to, to what I was thinking of talking about and hoping to talk about. Um, in particular, liberal and democratic ideals are the only realistic way of meeting the big challenge that's at the heart of, of my latest book. And that is uh, what I call the great experiment of building ethnically and religiously diverse democracy. Why is this a, a great experiment? What's new about this? Um, this has two reasons. The first is that and many democracies in the world, like Germany, where I grew up, were uh, very homogeneous at the time when the democratic institutions took hold. Indeed, I don't believe that it's a coincidence that German democracy took hold after World War II at a time where because of the crimes uh, and the wars and uh, the genocides and the expulsions of the first half of the 20th century, the country had become more homogeneous than it had been at any time in uh, recent history. Um, other countries like the United States, where I'm speaking to you from today, have of course been ethnically and religiously diverse since the founding. At the time of the founding of the American Republic, um, the country contained uh, a lot of Native Americans and a lot of African Americans. Um, but of course, they were also brutally excluded from uh, a share in the government and in many ways from the most basic forms of freedom uh, at the time and for a large portion of American history. So what's novel in the United States today is not the fact of diversity, but it is the fact that it is a political system which gives all of its uh, members uh, formal equality and tries, even if it fails in many ways, to uh, treat different members of a society equally irrespective 
of their race or religion. And so uh, for the first time, we have a situation in the great majority of consolidated democracies, the great majority of affluent democracies in which we're trying to build ethnically and religiously diverse polities that actually treat the members as equals. That's the starting point. Now, I make the argument that this is actually very difficult for three sets of reasons that we should take seriously. The first of these is that we as human beings have a very strong tendency towards uh, building groups and favoring their members over anybody who does not belong to it. Uh, the undergrads I teach at Johns Hopkins University, which is an incredibly diverse campus now, think of themselves as some of the most tolerant people in the world, and in some ways perhaps they are. But if I ask them to debate whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich, uh, those students of mine who think that a hot dog is a sandwich immediately start to discriminate against those who think that a hot dog is not a sandwich. And there's been many psychological studies over the years which show that simply creating a group on criteria that may seem as very, very silly can quickly motivate the members to say, I'm going to be quite altruistic towards you, often display great courage, sometimes display great uh, 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 altruism. But if you're not a member of my group, when I might dehumanize you, I might treat you very, very badly indeed. And nobody is exempt from that. As the great comedian Tom Lehrer put it, it's very important to like your fellow human beings. And there are some people in the world who do not like their fellow human beings. And I hate people like that. So even those of us who think of ourselves as especially tolerant should be on the guard against us. The second and obvious point is that when you look at history, most of the time, the way uh, in which this uh, instinct towards in-group favoritism has played out has not been uh, along seemingly silly lines, like whether or not you think that a hot dog is a sandwich, but rather along uh, the lines of a scriptive identity that keep cropping up again and again in different ways in human history, along the lines of religion, along the lines of ethnicity, along the lines of so-called race, um, along the lines of linguistic or ethnic or national communities. Not every crime in human history was committed along one of those lines, but when you look at the uh, pages of uh, the saddest history books, many of them are concerned uh, with, with these basic forms of ascriptive identity. And so we see that they have a special power to motivate human beings and often to motivate them to do very, very bad things. And the third reason why it's hard to build diverse democracies has to do ironically with the institutions of democracy. Um, in uh, When you look at some of the best examples of relatively tolerant diverse societies from Baghdad in the ninth century to Vienna in the 19th century, they often actually came in multinational empires. And the reason for that is that when you don't have any political power and you have to trust the monarch to have some form of toleration towards you, um, then it doesn't particularly matter if another group has more population growth than you do. Because if you used to be in the majority, now some other group is in the majority, it doesn't actually transform your political fate. You had no power yesterday, you had no power today. As long as you continue to trust the monarch, it is sort of okay. But it's obviously a deeply imperfect solution. Um in a democracy, 
you're always looking for electoral majorities. And so it's much more tempting to say, well, we used to be in the majority. Suddenly you over there are having more kids or there's more people coming to the society who look like you rather than me or have the same faith as you rather than as me. Um, I might lose my power and then everything might change. And so all of the forms of demographic uh, panic that you see so powerfully on parts of the right and the far right uh, in the United States, United Kingdom and other countries around the world are exacerbated in some ways by one of the basic democratic mechanisms. So now you could say, look at the difficulty of this, look at the state of our societies. It, it, it is tempting to become deeply pessimistic. And this, I think, is what a lot of the public discourse has actually done over the course of the last years and the last decades. They start off by saying it should be easy to build diverse democracies. And when they look at the discrimination, the injustice, uh, and the tension and the polarization in our society, and they say, well, how can we have any hope? We're failing at this basic task. How can we think that things are going to get better? I argue in my latest book for a more optimistic vision, because I think when you start to realize how difficult it actually is to build diverse democracies, when you take seriously how often, how frequently, how violently the project of doing that has gone wrong in the past, then you can look back at current reality and see a glass half full rather than a glass half empty. You can see, for example, in the United States, that in 1960, only about 5% of Americans believed that it was morally legitimate for a white and a black American to marry each other. Today, this has flipped exactly. So only about 5% of Americans now believe that it is morally illegitimate for a white and a black American to marry each other. And we know that this is a transformation that's happening in the heart of actual society because the, the share of interracial babies in the United States has gone up from about 1 in 33 to about 1 in 6. That is a fundamental transformation. We see it in much of Europe in the debate about immigration. I think there's a weird confluence of pessimisms on the right and the left when it comes to questions of immigration, where some people on the, the far right in particular insinuate that immigrants who are coming to countries like the United Kingdom or Germany or the United States today uh, aren't succeeding in integrating or in rising the socioeconomic ranks because there's supposedly something uh, inferior about them. Um, the left rightly and the mainstream, many of my friends and colleagues, rightly reject that attribution of blame, but actually echo the basic factual findings, saying that because of the extent of racism and discrimination, immigrants who are coming to these societies today from Asia and Africa and other places uh, uh, cannot succeed. But the empirical evidence is actually much more optimistic than either of these stories suggests. We see throughout Europe that the children, the grandchildren of immigrants actually have a higher likelihood of gaining a lovely degree from the LSE, for example, or from another um, leading university in the United Kingdom or of earning much higher wages uh, than the children or grandchildren of similarly situated non-immigrants. Uh, and we see in the United States that immigrants today from uh, Mexico and El Salvador and Vietnam and Kenya and Nigeria uh, are in the middle of a slow process of social mobility, which does take years and does sometimes take generations, but which is uh, taking place at about the same speed as the integration and the socioeconomic progress of Italian and Irish immigrants a century ago. And so both of these forms of pessimism, I think, are actually misplaced. So what we need 
is an ambitious vision of what the future of diverse democracies might look like. One that isn't just defending uh, the current reality, but which actually can offer to citizens a realistic vision of how we can build a society together that is actually worth living in. Because if we tell people that everything is going so terribly wrong, that there's no hope, uh, then I fear that uh, they are going to turn to the right wing and the far right uh, populists who simply say, this isn't working and we have to abandon the ship uh, before it goes so too far. So I'm, I'm being asked to, to wrap up here on, on Zoom, but let me just say very briefly that uh, I think the core of the vision of that society has to be one uh, that is based on the basic liberal principles of freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of association. One which recognizes that we have to be protected against the uh, attempts by the state to interfere with our free choices, the attempt by a tyrannical majority to try and tell us how to live, to intimidate us, but which also sets citizens free against the traditional constraints on them, which often come from their own group, which also ensures that our own uh, parents and aunties and uncles and uh, priests and rabbis and imams don't get to tell us what to do. And so we need double freedom, the freedom which protects us from the tyranny of the state and the majority, but which also ensures that we have the means to lead a self-determined life if we choose to leave our own communities behind and set out uh, to make a life of our own. Um, I'll pause it there. Thank you very much, Jaska, for that. That somewhat more optimistic view about democracy, which we'll come back to. Let me now turn to Mukalika, who I think will echo many of Leah's themes about the difficulties of balancing economic liberalism and democracy and the challenges of multi-ethnic democracies in the context of India, where these challenges are particularly acute. Mukalika, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Manush. And thank you to the terrific LSE events team for putting together this research festival, which is such a celebration of what we do the rest of the year. Um, we call this panel the future of democracy and, and India is a good crystal ball, I think, to look into to understand what uh, lies in store. Um, and I think by thinking about India in this context and coming after Leah and, uh, and Yasha, I, it's also an attempt to slightly decolonize the idea of how we think and theorize democracy from the global south, and in this case, the largest democracy in the world, which is seen to be a receiver of philosophical ideas rather than a producer of it. And as an anthropologist, I argue, in fact, that uh, quite humble paddy farmers in, in an Indian village are very good theoretical innovators of uh, democratic ideas. And that's what the book is about, but I won't talk about that too much, except to just uh, allude to some of the key arguments. Um, the first thing to say is that India is a good case for several reasons. The first one is right at the start of India's birth, there was a contest which drew attention to a key aspect of democracy. And the contest was what shall we call this new nation? And this was 19, between 1947 and 1950. And there was, initially it was called a sovereign republic. And then the person who intervened 
uh, the chair of the drafting committee said, no, we must call it a sovereign democratic republic. And who was the person who, who insisted on using both the words democracy and republic? None other than arguably the most illustrious LSE alumnus, B.R. Ambedkar, who had a PhD from LSE after he had a PhD at Columbia, and that Columbia story is very important. And he was very uh, determined that both these words needed to be used. And why was this? Because for him, democracy, the word democracy denoted political democracy, the democracy of institutions, of separation of powers, of freedom of media, of elections, of, of universal suffrage, and so on. But he said, you also need to recognize that reducing democracy just to this, or the kind of nation we want to build, uh, to just saying political democracy is meaningless because we must use the word republic, as many countries, by the way, in the world do, including, of course, the United States of America, that the republic will denote the idea of economic and social democracy, right? What Leah was saying at the start about what is the relationship to the economy is very important. What Yasha was talking about in diversity and social composition of the population, how are you going to deal with those challenges is the word is encapsulated in that word republic. So India came to be called a democratic republic. And I draw attention to this because this uh, highlights and draws our attention to a very key aspect of how we think about democracy, which is that it is definitely a composite both of institutions and democratic culture. So political democracy is about institutions, which are absolutely key, but we, but we also need to live as Democrats in society. And so it's much more about horizontal relationships between citizens. It is about, it's not about verticality, who you're electing, representation, but how you live together. Now for, for Ambedkar, these ideas were coming as much from Jyoti Rao Phule, a Dalit intellectual of uh, Indian liberalism in the 19th century, um, who of course had, there was this great tradition of radical liberalism in India that political uh, philosophers have written about in the Indian context, but also Ambedkar's favorite teacher, John Dewey in Colombia. And for Dewey, you know, very much in that Tocqueville brain, the idea of democracy was about associated living, about how do you live with other people? And that is important. Now, this idea that, you know, one of the big gambles that India took and Churchill and everybody else did not mince their words in saying what a stupid idea it was for a poor country, poor illiterate country. And Churchill should have known. He made sure that he had, he played his role in ensuring that India was poor and illiterate when Britain uh, left. But um, they thought it was a silly idea that a poor and illiterate country had universal, chose to have universal suffrage. And the idea here of universal suffrage was that through participation too, you can have education. So this idea that you have to be educated in order to participate and therefore poor people somehow don't know what they're doing was, uh, was argued against, pushed back against. And of course, Dewey is known for his writings on education, that participation itself led to education. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ 
ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. In order to create, therefore, democracy in that fulsome sense of both institutions and democratic cultures, you needed what I would call, you know, from, from the title of my book, I call it cultivating democracy because it takes a process of continual cultivation. It's what the philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, you know, when he writes about democracy, he says democracy is a telic project. It is a project that's constantly work in progress. It is always becoming something. There is no room for complacency. So you cannot just insert and, and, or implant a set of democratic institutions. And many of us will remember this in the sort of post-Cold War era of democratization of Eastern Europe, that somehow introducing a checklist of institutions was going to turn societies democratic. And, and um, this was an idea, this was a caution against that, that you just institutions wasn't important. You needed to create democratic culture, but also critically, the relationship between the two was very important. So what, how you lived with other people would determine your relationship to institutions and whether you were vigilant about them. And institutions in turn, for example, voting in elections, gave you an understanding and created a certain kind of political subjectivity of living in a democracy. So as an anthropologist studying democracy, what I do therefore is not to study elections, but look at what happens in society in between elections. And I would argue really that ideas that are quite germane to democracy, what Taylor would call social imaginaries of democracy, are created often in between elections. They are created in non-political institutions of the economy, say a harvest or, uh, or uh, you know, the festival of Qurbani amongst Muslims. I mean, my fieldwork was in a Muslim village largely and low caste Hindus. These created ideas of redistribution of the common good, of uh, inviolate commitment, of uh, accommodation, you know, without which you cannot create democratic cultures. And that's really quite important. So if you were to look at, um, you know, so this is the sort of overall argument of, of the book that I, uh, of Cultivating Democracy. If we now look in 2022 at India, India, of course, and Yasha will uh, recognize this talking about diversity, that India actually was the classic diverse democracy. When India chose to become diverse, uh, become a democracy, there was no blueprint it could follow. It had to create its own blueprint. So Indian democracy right from the get-go was entirely unique. It, it had to make up rules. And in a sense, I think uh, Europe and North America need to, and, and others, need to see what is happening in India to understand how you create diverse democracies. This is what I mean by the crystal ball. Unfortunately, the reason why India is very good to think with is because what we are seeing in India at the moment is that process of degeneration 
that some call electoral authoritarianism or uh, democratic backsliding. But really, to my mind, it is the very cynical manipulation of that relationship between democratic institutions and democratic culture that I talked about. Because what has happened is until 2014, India was famous for having the best run elections given the scale of the exercise. The electorate is, you know, is the size of all of North America, Europe and Australia put together. This electorate in India is larger than that. It's a vast electorate. Given the scale, India did elections very well. So much so that when the UK set up its own electoral commission in 2001, it chose to take advice from the Indian Election Commission because this is something India did well. So post 2014, what has been happening in India is that of course the regime in power, which uh, believes in you know, right and left wing doesn't quite capture it. It is uh, uh, an ideology of majoritarianism, which is essentially non-democratic. The whole point of democracy is that you don't have a majoritarian uh, agenda. You are, it's a bulwark against majoritarianism. But the political party in power, led by the BJP, has a majoritarian political agenda of turning India from this diverse democracy that it is into a Hindu supremacy, a, a, a Hindu nation, right? That's what the political ideology of Hindutva is about. And despite, and India has the third largest population of Muslims anywhere in the world. Most people don't realize this, but it is a very, it's only 14% of the electorate, but in sheer numbers, this is, the third largest Muslim population in any nation. You've got to do something with that. So if you, if you want to turn India into a Hindu majoritarian nation, then essentially you need to dehumanize and reduce that wow. Hindu population to second-class citizenship. And every single day at the moment since 2014, accelerated after 2019 when the BJP came back to power, what we have seen, and today, in today's news, an activist who studied at JNU, a university many of us know well, her home was literally bulldozed to the ground. So talk about, Yasha, you're quite right. We should not, absolutely not take for granted our right to sit here and criticize the prime minister or ask questions of our ministers of the government because we know we won't go home to a raised house, but that's what is happening with the Muslim population in India. So what we are watching in India really is, you know, what Ziblatt and, and uh, Levitsky call in their book, How Democracies Die. Uh, they say, you know, democracies die not because of military coups anymore. They die from the inside. They're eaten up through its own institutions. And this is what we are seeing in India, where elections continue as if they are those famous elections that everybody celebrated, but elections themselves have been hollowed out of meaning. Electoral expenditure has been made opaque. The secret ballot has been compromised. And the Election Commission of India that much admired public institutions, its neutrality has been compromised. So elections in India, so we all, you know, we, we get excited about elections. We look at vote shares and seat shares and who's winning, who's, it's as if we are doing, you know, we're watching, we think we are watching a cricket match, 
but they're playing hockey. And we don't, don't recognize that because it's a game, it's a sport. And that is what the degeneration or the death of democracy looks like. And therefore, and I can't possibly end on such a macabre, dark uh, uh, view of democracy eating itself. So I think it is, you know, what do we see when this happens in democratic culture? That's the story of the institutional rot. But in democratic culture, what we see, the first thing, the first casualty is civility. Civility disappears. And civility is not about good manners. It's about how you treat people you don't know. How do you, you know, I think the London Underground is a great example of civility. Because people, you don't have to be polite. You don't, you know, if you push somebody and, and walk past them, you'll, you may never see them again, but you don't. And I think public transport introduces norms of civility and there are other ways to think about it. But civility is very important. And vigilance, that idea of vigilance that I introduced to the idea of cultivation, that idea that you cannot take for granted the democracies you have, you've got to watch them like a hawk, much like a farmer does from the day he plants the seeds or she plants, farmers in India are mostly women now, they plant the seed, they watch it every single day for, for pests, for, for any kind of adverse situations, for dryness, for rain, for, you know, you're constantly watching it to make sure that you, uh, that it flourishes. And I think therefore the opposite of, of that kind of cultivation is complacency. Complacency is when you stop being vigilant. And what we're seeing in India certainly is not vig vigilance, but we see vigilantism. We see people taking life law into their own hands. And because it's now open season to, to uh, reduce the Muslim minority population to second-class citizenship, that is what is happening. And so the pushback has to be at the level of society. Yes, it has to be about institutions, but it has to be about democratic values. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So while you gather your thoughts, I will come to the audience in the room momentarily. I wanted to just ask one question of Leah and then one to Yashka and, and Mukalika. So I'm gonna start with Leah. And the question is, you're very critical about how liberal market economies undermine democracies. Do you think it's possible to be free and have a liberal market economy? And my question to Yashka and Mukalika is, you, you're both very critical of majoritarianism uh, and the risks of that. And I wanted to ask you, what would you do to reduce that risk? For example, many people argue that, for example, proportional representation political systems are more democratic than winner-takes-all systems because you have less majoritarianism in proportional representation. Many people are enamored of citizens' assemblies at the moment mm -hmm. uh, as a way to build horizontal connections between citizens and foster a better culture of democracy. But I'd be very interested in your thoughts about what can we do to reduce the risks around majoritarianism? You know, my view, one of my views is that one of the biggest things we do at the London School of Economics is we, we get people from very different backgrounds to mix with each other. Mm. Uh, and that changes the way they see the world forever. And yet we live in societies in which people don't encounter people who are very different from them very often anymore. And we all know why and social media bubbles and so on. So what would you do to, to try and 
reduce the risks around majoritarianism. Leah, you go first. Great, thanks. Um, so is it possible to be free and have liberal market economies? I would say yes, but only for some. And so within those liberal market economies, for those that control economic power, so within advanced capitalist states, for those who control economic power, and within the globalized system, for those who can make the rules of the international economic order, because there is an asymmetry there as well between how much poor states can shape. For example, again, we've seen it with the COVID-19 pandemic when it comes to patents and uh, property rights. And so it seems to me that and, and the term liberal there is perhaps a bit misleading. So what I'm really critical of is capitalism, because I think capitalism is a kind of economic system that encourages asymmetries of economic power that are incompatible with equal freedom. So I think you can have market economies if you have democratically controlled economies, and then you could also have market principles within these democratically controlled economies, because then you have a shelter and the kind of cushion the state doesn't let, uh, there's more guarantees, there's more economic safeties, which means that then people are not completely disempowered. And so it seems to me that these two things, both at the domestic level and at the international level, are the problem that we have now. And the international level, it's even worse because you don't have mechanisms of political legitimation that enable you to change the rules of the game. So the rules of the game are really the rules of the rich states who, can, who control the markets, who control property rights, who control how you access medicines and so on. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let me turn to Yashka and then Mukalika on majoritarianism. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm really struck by something that's true in my intellectual milieu, at least in the United States. I think it's less pronounced in Britain, for I've seen aspects of that in the United Kingdom as well. And that is that it has become nearly the rigueur to look down on the majority of the population. Um, to speak about the majority of our fellow citizens as though they were bad human beings, as though they were bigots of various sorts, as though they were incapable of responding to uh, basic moral considerations, incapable to responding to the suffering of our fellow citizens with compassion. And I think often this is a form of uh, you know, in-group favoritism that doesn't see its own nature. It's a form of saying we are the enlightened at great universities with good educations and the big urban centers, and we are the good people, but all these other people are sort of the barbarians at the gate, right? All the people in the heart of the country or away from the capital who, uh, uh, you know, are the so-called uneducated, uh, you know, they're terrible. If a politician says that they love the uneducated, that is the worst strike against them, right? Um uh, and I think we should be quite self-critical about that. So I'm not against majorities, actually. I, I have trust in the political wisdom of the average citizen. Um, I've taken the time to watch a lot of focus groups, which actually, I think, help to give people faith in democracy again. I think every professor of political science in the world should be, uh, the one illiberal law I'm in favor of, should be required by law to watch at least two or three hours of focus groups a week to actually see how people reason about politics and, and, and to notice that they often are actually very decent. Having said all of that, so actually I'm in favor of um, more participation. I'm in favor of certain forms of citizen commissions. I'm in favor of politicians actually listening to what the fellow citizens want rather than saying, if you want that, you must be a bad human being. But there also need to be protections against the majority in crucial areas of human life. So we should have more listening to the will of the majority on a whole set of issues. But of course, if a majority, as uh, Mukulika Banerjee rightly pointed out, 
uh, is actuated by a form of religious supremacy and says our Muslim fellow citizens shouldn't have the rights to worship freely or to be full citizens of a country, there need to be constitutional guarantees which come to the rescue of that minority. When somebody who may have been elected by a majority is in office and wants to undermine the independence of all kinds of institutions in order to make it impossible for that democratically elected leader to be removed from a or from office by democratic means, as is the case for Narendra Modi, but it's also the case of Viktor Orban in Hungary, and as was nearly the case for Donald Trump in the United States and so on, then you have to have counter-majoritarian institutions that step in and say, no, no, hang on a second, you're going beyond the limits of your legitimate authority, and we need to make sure that the people not only have a right to vote you in, but also a right and an ability to vote you out, and they change their mind. So, um, so, so I suppose I would say actually majorities are good to be a true believer in democracy. I think sociologically, if not logically or philosophically, you have to have some trust in the ability of a majority of citizens to actually uh, reason um, morally and, 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 and act in a decent manner. But yes, we absolutely need some institutions that can step in in the worst case in order to ensure that we protect the most basic liberal rights of ethnic, religious, and other political and other minorities, uh, and to make sure that we continue to have independent institutions, which uh, ensure that a democratically elected leader can be pushed out of office in a democratic manner as well. Majorities and majoritarianism are obviously distinct things. I mean, yes, you need a majority to win a democratic election, but when you win the election, you are representing the interests for all. So you're not, there as a representative of that majority. And that is majoritarianism. When you do that, that becomes, so it's not an anti-people uh, uh, ideology to say that you're anti-majoritarianism. And, and we don't do focus groups, Yasha, as anthropologists, we talk to real people all the time. So, you know, our, our feet are very firmly on the ground as anthropologists thinking about democracy. And I completely agree with you. Like I was saying, you know, I've learned more about how to live with other people uh, who are not like you from paddy farmers in West Bengal. Uh, so this is not an elitist idea at all in any sense. But I agree with Minush. I think it is really important for us to say this uh, more than once, that often that's what university actually, that's the greatest transferable skill students get, you know, apart from the degree in economics or anthropology or political philosophy. What they're learning to do is learn with other people who they don't know from before and to to create a community out of people they don't know from, from before. I think the point about PR is important, especially because it doesn't let parties with that kind of big command of majorities triumph and pretend like they're pretending that they're working just for the people who voted for them, which is anti-democratic. But the fundamental point that I was making, which is really important to underscore and realize, is what do you do with elections that have been corrupted from the inside? And that is what has happened in a place like India, which until 2014 had, a, had all sorts of flaws, but it had a good election system. But now when you corrupt the electoral system such that Yes, you get 31% of the vote share or whatever, you know, you win the election. Uh, it's meaningless because it, it doesn't have the gravitas it should. But on, again, on a hopeful note, Minoshu asked us to think what, what we would do. And I think, you know, this thing in the US that 
local news, the decline of local news and local newspaper has been really bad for democracy is a, is a very interesting one. And I would say, actually, the more local your political involvement is, the more democratic a country can be. So you don't have this distinction between, I mean, look at America at the moment. It's entirely, it's a new cleavage, cleavage between Democrats living in cities and, and a rural hinterland voting for Republicans. I mean, this is a new kind of cleavage that has showed up, or there is an idea of the elites in the cities and, and politics of one kind happening there and a different kind of politics in the hinterland. And therefore, if any, everyone had a bit more sense of working with people and fixing, you know, I think the Jubilee parties last weekend here were a very interesting experience for a lot of people. If you talk to people, they're, just, they're aghast that, you know, they live next to people for 40 years and never known who they were. And so that, that would be my solution. Have more street parties. <laughs> Very good. Very good. All right. Who could disagree with that? Um, let's take some questions from the audience. If you could raise your hand. Uh, and for those who are online, if you could submit your questions and I will come to you. I'll take the woman in the back and the gentleman here in the red. And then I'll take Professor Kelly. And if we could get mics to all of them, that would be great. And please introduce yourself uh, before you ask your question. We'll start with the woman right there. If you could raise your hand so the mic can find you. Okay. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Sophie. I just graduated from LSE last year. Um, so it's great to be back. Um, my question was kind of building on um, what you were saying at the end. Um, it's kind of a UK-centric question, but we're seeing there's been a lot of undemocratic bills that are going through the um, UK parliament. So it's obviously by democratic means. So there's been a lot of steps to disenfranchise a lot of voters through ID cards or um, bills passed to kind of um, infringe people from the ability to protest in the UK. And I just wanna ask, um, what does that mean for the future of democracy when countries like the UK and US, you know, think of themselves as this beacon of democracy? What does that leave? And where does that leave aspirational democracies when, um, as to borrow your phrase before, there's kind of a hollowing out a lot of the um, Western democracies? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sophie. Over here. Yeah. Uh, a strong, uh, my name is Ganesh and I'm from India. I believe a strong and independent judiciary is absolutely vital for the protection of the future of democracy. It is such a, such a competent and effective judiciary which protects a minority from the tyranny of the, uh, of the majority. And it prevents many of the ills which majoritarianism, which has been alluded to, uh, can lead to. Now, there is an internationally recognized corruption index, which I think is framed by Amnesty International, which grades and ranks countries in terms of how corrupt they are as compared to other countries. And this corruption index has proved very effective. And it has compelled many an errant regime to set its house in order and clear up its act. I was wondering, could we not have a similar independence of judiciary index framed by recognized worldwide uh, bar associations? Okay, thank you. Which I think would also have a very, very salutary effect in, in ensuring that we have strong, effective and competent judiciaries. And that I think is the best protection for minorities. And it is also something which would ensure that no one need ever come back 
to a house which is raised to the ground or even an election which is fatally flawed. Thank you. Thank you, Ganesh. Paul, just here in the front. Um, two questions, a separate one for Leah, but a question for Muku and Yashka that comes from Leah's start with um, Rousseau. For the two of you, Muku and, and Yashka, how big can a democracy be before it implodes? I mean, Rousseau would have thought India just way too big to be a democracy. Okay, so the question is, what is the size beyond which you don't get this sort of proximity and sense of common life? Obviously an issue in China. And then for Leah, if the problem is capitalism, who's gonna change that and how? Okay, all right. Why don't I start with Yashka? You can take whichever question you like and then I'll come to Mukalika and then Leah. Uh, wonderful. Yeah, let me say two things. The first is I like this idea of an uh, index of uh, the independence of judiciaries. Go ahead and do it. Um, uh, it. You know, it sounds like you have a great idea. I, I don't believe this exists. Well, perhaps it does. If it doesn't, go ahead and, uh, you know, talk to organizations and so on and make it happen because it sounds like, like, like an obviously appealing idea. Um, I will say about uh, strong judicial review that uh, it is similar, my view on this is structurally similar to the one about majorities, which is to say that um, we need very strong courts that are able to step in when fundamental rights are threatened and when uh, the executive really oversteps the boundaries of its legitimate authority. But precisely because of that, uh, we don't. We also need to ensure that most areas of our decision-making are in the hands of majorities as interpreted through legislative procedures. So I worry about the way in which the United States, for example, the Supreme Court has slowly encroached on so many areas of public policy that it just becomes a very partisan institution, or at least one that's seen as being very partisan, and precisely has greater difficulty protecting the most fundamental uh, rights and the most fundamental elements of a political system when push comes to shove, because it no longer has that independent authority. So you need strong judicial review, but you also need limited judicial review. And those two things are not uh, mutually contradictory. And then to address Paul's uh, excellent uh, question, um, well, of course, any democracy in the world, with perhaps the exception of Liechtenstein or something, um, is too big according to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And so, uh, you know, as a new mint American, I would argue back with uh, Fabulous Papers number 10, which is that um, what Rousseau thought the answer was, namely to make a society small and homogeneous enough that you can have the people act in spontaneous concert is simply an unrealistic uh, aspiration in the modern world. And it's an aspiration which would come at the expense of any genuine form of freedom. And so what we should do instead is to have large democracies which have a sufficient number of different factions that not any one of those factions can hope to dominate uh, the others. Um, uh, because then they will have to live by shared rules that everybody perhaps dislikes now and again, but can somehow live with. The problem of course is, when even very large democracies devolve into two or three factions, and one of those factions thinks that it can rule over the others. So in the United States, that problem is one of 
political partisanship, what the framers of a constitution did not reckon with was the rise of the Democratic and the Republican parties and uh, the hope that uh, the Republican Party in its current state particularly has of simply dominating over that other party so that effectively we only have two factions. Um, and of course, um, as um, uh, Mukulika was rightly saying, uh, the danger in India is a religious majority faction, is a politicized form of Hinduism saying we are the majority and we can act against the other salient faction of Muslims in order to enforce our rights. So I think it's not a question of size, it's a question of how do you stop the multiplicity of uh, democratic society uh, collapsing into two or three factions? That's when it becomes dangerous. Okay. Thank you. Um, just briefly to address Sophie's question, I think it is the short answer, it's deeply worrying when, when uh, the kind of laws that have been passed have been passed, uh, the, what has been done to elections and voter IDs in Britain is frankly shocking and part of the lack of vigilance is that we've had actually so little public discussion about it. And that's precise, it's a very good example of why you need way more vigilance than we, than we have. On the um, uh, judiciary index, well, actually it kind of is present. It's not there as a separate index, but it's part of the varieties of democracy index. There are lots of barometers that measure countries' democratic credentials and uh, the independence of the judiciary is one of them. India has been sliding on that very badly such that India is now partially, a it's a partial democracy, democracy. So it's not as if it's not being uh, counted. The, our challenge is not, you know, we know that there is a corruption. Our challenge is a new kind of politics where the Indian government now turns around and says, who is Sweden or the United States or Britain to tell us what is democracy and what we can do about it? Who are they to rank us? That is the kind of atavistic chauvinism that you have in that kind of Hindutva ideology. So my repost to that would be, fine, don't measure them by other people. Indians measure, should measure the performance of the judiciary by its own record. When it is independent and when it's not, it should measure the prime minister's office's transparency by when prime ministers used to take press conferences versus for the last uh, eight years when they haven't and so on. You know, so that's the thing. Now, Paul's question, it's such an interesting question actually of scale and is democracy limited by scale? And India again is the perfect uh, petri dish to, to examine this question. And I think that is exactly the challenge that the founders had. And therefore the model of political federalism that was designed and the three tiers of democracy that evolved to, I mean, the third tier of local government and street party level kind of democracy happened only with the 73rd and 74th amendments much later in the eighties. Uh, but it, that's what it exists. So there are three tiers of democracy, not just one. And this is uh, true here too. The flaw in it, the reason why I think it has been so problematic and has been corrupted and hollowed out so easily is because, and this is more minutiae's field, that there hasn't, the design, the design flaw was there wasn't fiscal federalism. So this fiscal centralization and political federalism, so you can't gather taxes. So if you look at Tim Besley's work on taxation, and I'm, my new research is on this uh, topic on taxation versus voting kind of thing, 
Besley would argue that you know the more tax you pay, the more income tax you pay, the more accountable you can hold governments. It's good for democracy and so on. In a place like India, there's more indirect taxes than direct taxes, which in itself is regressive. And people you vote for are not people who can tax you. So local governments just can't, and these are political reasons why they don't. So scale is not in itself an issue. It is how you manage centralization and decentralization. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So who is going to change capitalism is easy. I think it's basically the agents that capitalism fails with help from those who think that capitalism should change, even if they're not failed. But I think with environmental catastrophe around the corner, it will be majority of humanity will be failed by capitalism. So I think the odds are pretty good there. <laughs> Whereas on how, I think it's a more complicated question because it really is about levels of decision-making. So I, my first gut answer would be that it's contextual and that there is no one size fits all because it depends on what political resources the states have. And I used to think this, but I think that's actually now no longer enough. I think there also needs to be international coordinated action at the between states. So it's not enough to just say change needs to happen domestically and in awareness of local norms and that these things are culturally and politically specific, because I think there really needs to be a push globally to, to change things as well. Thank you. I, I'd like to take a couple of questions from online. So Maddie, if you could give me a couple uh, and you probably need a mic, so maybe we'll <laughs> give you a mic to be able to to give us those questions. I'm sorry, I'm going to run a, a few minutes over if you don't mind, but I think the conversation is is worth it. Uh, Danny Hatton from LSE staff. We've just heard the word civility, which is often considered to be about politeness, but the root word of civility refers to citizenship, what members of a political community share in common. Is the rising celebration of identity, both of majorities in countries like India and minorities in places like the US, eroding what we have in common as citizens and making democracy impractical? Okay. And question from Kamil Jonski, um, University of Lodz, Poland. To what extent is the current democratic crisis the result of political elite unwillingness or inability to notice and work on pressing political problems, ultimately pushing voters into the arms of populists? Okay, and maybe give me one more. Yeah. One. <laughs> um, Peter Ferdinand, can democracies devise an effective solution to the issue of climate change and how can they persuade non-democracies to collaborate? Okay, those are great questions. Uh, maybe this time I'll start with Leah and then turn to Mukalika and then Yashka. And I might, and if you have any kind of final thoughts you want to leave us with, this, this would be the moment. Okay, so I think um, maybe I start with the last question about democracy and whether we can persuade democracies to, to enact climate change. I think we don't have democracy, actually. If we had democracy, we would have more control of the corporations, of the agents, of people who are failing to act on climate change. It's because corporations can follow and pursue their own business that, and they're more or less unbridled by the current political elites that we have the current magnitude of the current crisis. So I think we would make steps in the right directions if we were able to control these market forces more than we have been able to do until now. And that connects to the other question about to what extent is this the result of elites not noticing political problems? I don't think they don't notice political problems. I think they their interests are aligned with a certain configuration of economic interests and therefore they pursue those interests with disregard for what happens to the majority of the world's population. So 
if, if we were able to have elites that are actually democratically responsible and democratically accountable, we would be some way towards resolving the kinds of problems that we have been talking about. I have one final word on pragmatism and uh, because I always I often get triggered when you know Yasha started by saying you have this ideal utopian vision and but if you take, if you take a more pragmatic perspective, then you you would see that we are actually in a much better position than we are liberal democracies. But from where I stand, um, pragmatism means that you look around and you see double standards the whole time. You see these liberal states that go around saying we should punish China and Russia and go doing deals with Saudi Arabia. You see liberal governments that contribute to toppling democratically elected governments in other parts of the world where it's not in their interest, where these governments don't serve their interest. You see wars done in the name of crude material interests, and when it's, you need to disengage to promote democratic standards, they either ignore or close the blind. So it seems to me that there are many real politic reasons to look at the world that we have and understand that it's not a democratic problem. And to me, liberal societies that have these double moral standards can't get the vote of moral confidence, and that's just a pragmatic perspective. I'll just close there. Thank you. Thank you. I think you have to take the question from Poland on populism, and maybe I'll ask Mikulika to focus on the civility question. Sure. Over to you. Uh, great, yeah, thank you. Um, uh, on, uh, you know, well, let's start on climate change. I think um, one of the core things there is to, again, trust in actually the wisdom of, 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 of a population. I think sometimes I hear too many people think, uh, say, look, you know, people don't want to do anything about climate change. And so perhaps even we need a form of climate dictatorship. This is something that's been discussed broadly in the United Kingdom in the last months because of a couple of interventions. And it's an idea that I'm asked of nearly every talk I give. Uh, but I think actually what we need is a vision for how to deal with climate change that is capable of convincing a majority of a population. And part of that is actually... Uh, to show that we've uh, made real progress, for example, in the price of renewable energy, that a lot of what we need to do in order to reduce how much CO2 we emit uh, is taking place because in many contexts, renewable energy is now more attractive and more appealing than CO2, even in a purely economic way. And to create a vision for the future in which we are fully dealing with the danger of climate change, but people are actually going to be more affluent, need better and richer uh, and more self-determined lives uh, than they do today. And I think uh, we would gain a lot from putting forward a vision of what the future of the world will look on climate change that is capable of sustaining that kind of optimism and that kind of uh, uh, consensus. Um, so uh, rather than despairing of uh, voting publics, as many people do, I think we need to give more reason for voting publics to actually get on board with our vision for how to deal with uh, climate change. Um, on output performance, uh, I agree entirely uh, that a lot of uh, the reasons why people end up voting for authoritarian populists is that they have legitimate complaints about uh, where their societies uh, are going, um, about uh, a lack of progress in the living standards of average citizens, about uh, a sense that the people who are uh, in charge uh, are self-serving, but they don't care about ordinary people. In many countries, very deep problems of corruption. The problem, of course, is that, uh, as many studies have shown, um, these populists usually uh, worsen those problems rather than alleviating them. So, for example, candidates who run on anti-corruption messaging uh, usually result in their country uh, deteriorating in its position on that anti-corruption index that I believe his name was Ganesh 
uh, was mentioning earlier. So this creates a deep uh, paradox, right? How do you, and it basically means for democratic systems have to address those concerns early enough and well enough that populists don't get into a position of exploiting them. Because once they are able to exploit them, they are often able to get in power to entrench themselves and they make those problems worse, which can uh, lead to a kind of uh, uh, vicious cycle. Um, and then finally, very briefly on the question of citizenship and civility, um, uh, I think it is important for us to have a common sense of citizenship. And in my last book, I even uh, defend a form of inclusive patriotism because I think that, uh, and I don't think that that's in contrast to human groupishness, right? In diverse societies, given human nature, we will always have people give great importance to uh, the religious and cultural and national and perhaps uh, ethnic groups uh, to which they belong. Um, that's something that we might welcome or it's something we might lament, but it's a reality of our society. What's really important is that on top of that, we also have a level at which we actually see that we have something in common, but we also have a set of uh, ideas and symbols and values and perhaps cultural practices which uh, make us say, hey, it's fine that you're a member of this group, I'm a member of that group, but in a different way of looking at it, we are both British or we're both American or both Indian. Um, and that means that we can sustain a genuine form of solidarity with each other. Um, so, so that's what, what I would recommend. Thank you. So um, I think those two questions can be linked very nicely with on civility and climate change, uh, because solving or addressing climate change requires civility. And I think it's absolutely right. As I was saying, civility is not just about holding open doors for people. It's about learning to work with people whom you don't know and to learn to accommodate and compromise and associate in a way that it's possible to pull together. It is in that very Arendtian sense of uh, being political, of being coming together in action, of learning to work with others. And in order to do that, civility is actually, I would think, quite an important part of being able to do that. Now with climate change, you're getting therefore new cleavages on the international order forming. But one thing that we know is that climate change is that kind of larger public common good that is not about self-interest only. It is about literally the future of the planet. So you have to learn to suppress individual desires to pull along with others, to work together, to create and to feel solidarity. And citizens assemblies, which you mentioned before, are very interesting uh, innovations because it's not, it's first learning to be civil and working with other people. It's like taking public transport, um, but it's also, having to educate yourself and learning of the science, learning to uh, ask and answer the questions that people ask you when you try to persuade them to recycle or uh, fly less or whatever. And I think one of the very interesting things that have been appearing in, in, the, in writings is that part of the education is learning that the cleavages are in fact not about democracies versus democ non-democracies. They are about post-colonial societies versus Euro-America. It's about looking at who has catching up to do in meeting their targets. Why uh, does coal continue to be used in certain parts of the world? And therefore it is not about 
China versus the rest, for instance. It is about asking tough questions of uh, wealthy societies, much in the way that the pandemic, I think, raised uh, those questions, and they have to be done with civility. Thank you. So I wanted to thank our wonderful panel for this event on what I believe is the first day of our LSE festival. I also just wanted to note, uh, this is the first such event we've held in this space, in this new building. And I hope you noticed that the building is transparent, that it's open to the world, and these events are all open to the public. And it is, I think, a little bit of a contribution by us at the LSE to build a democratic culture and a culture of civility and bringing people together to talk about issues that really matter. So I'm very grateful to you as the audience, those who are present and those who are online for joining this conversation. Uh, and wanted to also mention that copies of Yashka's book, Leah's book and Mukalika's book are all available if you're interested in learning more. Uh, and I believe Leah is signing her book as well, uh, if you wanted a signed copy, and I'm sure Mukalika would sign some books as well. Uh, and there is also a reception. So please join us for a drink uh, and to carry on the conversation. And please give me, help me with, give one more round of applause to our fantastic panelists. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.